Hi, I'm Amber Cook. Welcome to my podcast, The Dragonfly Connection. Join me every week for open, honest, and real conversations about courage, transformation, and resilience to inspire and empower you to live your best life. This podcast is sponsored by HealingWays.com, helping you on your wellness journey. Visit HealingWays, that's Healing, W-A-Z-E dot com to find verified wellness professionals and holistic health resources. My guest Rachel S. Heslin learned the hard way that asking for help is essential to a successful life and career. In this episode, she shares that experience with us and all the lessons learned from it, like why is it so important to forgive ourselves first and learning to ignore shoulds and other people's goals for us. These are all lessons I have personally spent a lot of time working on too, and I'm sure we're not alone. Rachel has been immersed in the study of psychology for over 40 years. Her father, a clinical psychologist, taught his children his craft, and Rachel was first introduced to NLP, or Neuro Linguistic Programming, when she was only nine years old. Rachel is also the author of two books, Navigating Life, Eight Different Strategies to Guide Your Way, and Rituals of Release, How to Make Room for Your New Life. She's also also the founder of The Fullness of Your Power, helping people embrace all parts of their true selves so they can live happier, more successful, and more deeply fulfilling lives. In our conversation, Rachel so generously breaks down the eight strategies from her book along with her idea of rituals. It's a great conversation, one that will leave you with some serious tools to guide your way. Learn how to connect with Rachel and purchase her books in the show notes enjoy. Well, thank you, Rachel, for being here with me. This is really exciting. I know very little about you, except what I've gleaned from your website. So thank you for being here and letting me get to know more about you. Well, thank you very much for inviting me on. Yeah, it's going to be fun. I like to start out with some lighter questions just to help me and my guests get to know you a little bit more, kind of lighten the mood. Um, you have a, I wish people could see your background. It's beautiful, and it kind of represents where you are right now. Where is that that you're from? I live in the mountains of Southern California. I sometimes refer to it as an oasis above the smog, and I absolutely love it because I can look out the window, and I can see mountains, and it feels like that warm community, rural community, but I can drive an hour down the hill and I'm at my grandma's house and I can see family. So it's kind of the best of both worlds for me. It's nice. Yeah. You get pretty good weather, I'm assuming. Yeah. It's wonderful because we actually have four seasons. We get snow here in Southern California. It's a a ski resort community, but I don't have to worry about the huge light differences. If I were like, we were visiting a family up in Washington state Mm -hmm. and, And it got really dark in the winter and it's bright all the way in the the summer. And I just, I think I live in the perfect place. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. Yeah, I'm actually in Portland, Oregon. So Ah. I'm talking about with that really dark, (laughs) really dark. Uh, Where did you grow up? I actually grew up in Southern California, not here in the mountains, but in South Orange County, uh, closer to like the water area. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm a California girl born and bred. Nice. All right. And in your introduction, you mentioned that you love to sing. Is this singing to others or singing alone? Well, at the moment, it's primarily just with myself because I love singing, but I used to be in something called Sweet Adeline's, which is barbershop quartet music, uh, but it's like the, the female side of it. And I sang bass, which is really, I find amusing because I'm maybe five foot three. My husband is almost six foot three, and he's a tenor. So when we sing, I actually have a deeper singing voice than he does. And I just find that incredibly amusing. (laughs) That's awesome. So right now you guys just kind of sing more for fun then. Uh, Yes. Yeah, it just, I mean, I may end up doing karaoke once we get out and about more, but I just, 
there's I love music. I love having music in my life. Sometimes it's difficult working with instruments to have the amount of technical ability to let it flow. But when I am the instrument, it's so much easier to just concentrate on the music and the joy and the fun and just letting it flow out. Mm, yes. Yeah. I'm a huge music fan myself. That's awesome. So this, this question's a real silly one. And if okay. a movie was made of your life, what genre would it be and who would play you? Oh, goodness. <laughs> Probably combination drama comedy. I suppose I could play myself. I have an IMDb listing. Uh, <laughs> okay, well then, there you go. Which, Just play yourself. Well, I know what the I know what the title would be. What would be the title? It seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes, there are I just so that. many things I've done. I look back and like, well, okay, then we'll just move on. <laughs> oh my gosh, I can so relate to that. Oh, yes. <laughs> All right. So speaking of uh, what seemed good at the time, yeah. um, we're here to t- talk about d- a little bit deeper stuff. And you've had quite a journey. I want to focus on the job that you were fired from and how oh, that led my- you to explore you and shame and mindset. Tell me about that job and tell me what happened. Well, the job was one that I thought I could do. And I had some challenges with it. And at that point in time in my life, I didn't know it was okay to ask for help. Hmm. Uh, I... I don't know. There, there's some some people talk about the bane of the, the problems of being a gifted child. Mine was that I was very intuitive, and I had a very large vocabulary. And my father had introduced me to uh, psychological concepts when I was very young, so I came across as very precocious. The reason this became a problem is because people expected me to know more than I actually did. Mm -hmm. And because uh, I was a kid, I figured, oh, well, if people expect me to know this stuff, then I should know this stuff. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know that stuff. I mean, I was a kid. There was, there's a whole, I mean, I'm an adult and there's a lot of stuff I don't know. But I thought... I was supposed to know it. And if I didn't know it and I could not figure it out on my own, then that was shameful. And Mm -hmm. there was something wrong with me. And I put a lot of energy into creating this image of someone who was very confident and successful and uh, competent and can do all of these things. But I was putting so much energy energy into appearances that I was falling behind in actually learning and figuring things out. And because of that, a project I was working on went south and it ended up having a really negative impact on a lot of the relationships that the company I worked for had built with their vendors. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, pretty traumatizing. I tried to fix it. I real. I I did ever. I was staying late, and they finally said, "You know, we have to let you go. We mm. just we can't have you here." And it actually, there was an incredible amount of guilt on it uh, surrounding it for me because not only had I failed myself, I failed the company, and it actually impacted my supervisor. Mm-hmm. who hadn't known that I wasn't, that I had dropped the ball as badly. And even the friend who had gotten me the job. I mean, it was this incredibly traumatic experience. Yeah, I can imagine. And I, it led to a period of soul searching of what can I, what, what happened? Mm-hmm. Why am I like this? And looking at all of these ways that I approached it, 
I soon came across the work of Carol Dweck, who talks about the difference between fixed versus growth mindset. And with a fixed mindset, you think, well, this is who I am. And this is as good as it gets. Mm -hmm. This is what I've got. Whereas a growth mindset sees us as dynamic. We are here to learn and grow, and we don't know anything. But but, (laughs) I meant to say everything, but I guess anything (laughs) fits well when it comes Uh down to it. It's that sense of we don't know. And that's okay. But as I was reading this book, she was talking about some of the symptoms of the fixed mindset, including feeling that shame when you have to ask for help. And I'm like, huh, I recognize this. There is something about the way I'm approaching my life that isn't working. What else might be possible? And some of it goes down back to that childhood fear. Well, if I don't, if if I'm not perfect, if I'm not the person people want me to be, then uh, they won't like me. They will abandon me. I'm just a little kid. I'm going to die. So when people talk about people pleasing and things and they get frustrated with themselves, have compassion. Because it, on some level, there's a little kid in there that still believes it's a matter of life and death. Very true. Do you feel like that held you back from a lot of things in life early on? Did I did a lot of things, but what it held me back from was deeply experiencing the process, being part of my life, because there was always part of me that was gauging the impact on others. Mm-hmm. Am I doing it right? Is this what they want? And because of that trying that feedback loop, there was part of me that was not fully present in the experience. Mm-hmm. And as I, I'd, I'd say I feel sad about it, but I've gotten to this point that I recognize I'm not dead yet. Yes. Uh, you have a lot of time to I change have, that. Exactly. I mean, that's one of the things I've really been looking at is what makes self-forgiveness different from forgiving other people. Mm. Because it did require a lot of forgiveness of myself because I screwed up. There is no way I can, like, step away from that. Yeah. That's what happened. And what I found when I seek to forgive other people is that the purpose of that is to disentangle myself from them and their energies and their opinions and whatnot. I don't want other people to have control over my experience and my reactions. Mm -hmm. So when I forgive someone, it's letting go of of the fish hooks. That are that they tried to put into me. It's like no, I'm, I'm releasing that. I bless you. I wish you well. I am moving on. When you forgive somebody and you do this ritual and you fully forgive, does that mean that you have to forget? Well, it depends what your purpose is. Okay. Because, as I say, my purpose is to disentangle from mm-hmm. their energy, so I am no longer caught up in that pattern. One of the things about it depends what it is that you forget. If you forget, for me, it's helpful to forget the concept that I was wronged or something was done to Mm -hmm. me. But it is also useful for me to remember hey, in this situation, this happened. So if I run into a similar situation in the future, what did I learn from this experience that I may want to approach it with more caution? Mm-hmm. I may want to ensure there's a greater clarity of intention and communication. Mm-hmm. So that I learn from the experience, but I don't need to hold on to the 
uh, the painful part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it's the, the purpose of pain is to let you know that something is wrong. Yes, and something needs to change. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So if you have the learning, mm-hmm. then it's no longer necessary to hold on to the pain because there's no longer a purpose to it. Yes, yes, I love that. So after you got fired from this job, how long, had, first of all, how long had you worked at that job? Um, I, I think a year. Okay. This was some time ago. Okay. But I had, I had been a Kelly girl. Uh, oh. working for a temp agency uh-huh. for about seven years before that. So I was accustomed to, um, I worked at many different places and I'd be there a few months or a few weeks or whatever. And then this came on and I, and I had been there for a while. It was, oh, I thought I had made a home here. So that mm, was difficult. So was, that's well. one of the reasons it was very devastating. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And cause these were, it wasn't just, I let down the company, but I let down people that I considered friends Mm -hmm. yeah and you were still like you said more of a people pleaser (laughs) back then so that's extra devastating when you are a people pleaser and you let people down so after that happened you got fired and you started exploring mindset and learning more about yourself Uh, what were some of the thing other things you did during that time period to really heal from that trauma and and grow Well, this comes back to what I was uh, referring to, the difference between forgiving other people and forgiving Mm -hmm. myself, because what I discovered when trying to forgive myself is I couldn't just say, oh, well, it's happened. I'm sorry. Move on. That wasn't enough. It didn't stick. It it felt icky. Mm -hmm. And the, the three things that I really had to face the first one was honesty was admitting yeah i i really messed this up mm-hmm. I, it's not just i dropped the ball but it 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 did damage it did real damage to people and an institution i cared about mm-hmm. yeah the second thing was i had to try to make amends i mentioned i was there for out like 11 at night, trying to fix everything, trying to put it back, doing everything I could to try to make it right. When it came down to it, I could not fix everything, Mm -hmm. but I did everything that was in my power to try to, Mm -hmm. to make that sincere effort to mitigate the damages. Yeah. And the third part and this is the one that, in a way, is ongoing, is there needed to be change. I could not be the same person that I was who had brought on, brought on that mm-hmm. tragic event. Yeah. I needed to change how I did things. I needed to look at myself. How do I approach commitments? How can I find new ways of doing things? How can I ask for help? How can I learn from this so mm-hmm. that it doesn't happen again? And with that, I, because I knew I was trying to change, that I recognized, yes, there's a problem. Yes, I tried to fix it. And yes, I am making a sincere effort so that it doesn't happen again Mm -hmm. I could have greater compassion for myself like yeah I looked into why it happened which is when I was looking back to my childhood like oh okay I can see why I did those things why I thought of it in those ways and instead of condemning myself and saying oh that was awful just point blank it was I am so sorry to my younger self, mm-hmm. that my younger self took on this burden that ended up coming out in this situation. Mm-hmm. So that compassion and loving myself and reassuring myself that it will be okay. We can learn from this and we can move forward. Yes. Did you get help from a professional, like a therapist, energy healing? Was this all through journaling? The 
journaling is a huge part of my process. Mm-hmm. Um, I <laughs> I am blessed in that my father is a clinical psychologist, uh-huh. <laughs> so I had I had stuff at home. Um, I also I had I had some really good friends. And when I had, I mean, there, there were some other things going on in my life that were related to this. It was a whole cascade of things. And I was talking to one friend when I had had this epiphany about being myself and how I had been putting so much effort into proving instead of improving. Mm, oh, I love that. And I, I told him, it's like, you know... I love this epiphany, but I wish that I had been able to have the epiphany without the trauma. (laughs) And his response was, sometimes if it's a big enough epiphany, it might not happen without the trauma. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a hard pill to swallow, but I think there's a lot of truth in that. Yeah, because it is so easy to go through life just getting by. Yes. And when you are used to just getting by, sometimes you need something to thwack you over the head to say, (laughs) hey, that's not enough. We have to change. Yes, yes. Yes, and change you did. You now have a career that is your own and that you help other people, specifically other people pleasers and those that struggle with the self-sabotage, the imposter syndrome. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And then feeling stuck. Like you just said, like it's easy to just be stuck. So we're going to start with self-sabotage. Now that you've done this work for yourself, how do you help other people deal with their self-sabotage? Well, the first thing I do is redefine it. Because what is generally seen as self-sabotage, I see as a very inelegant form of self-protection. There is something on the other side of what looks like success that part of you finds scary that you don't know if you can do it. You don't know if you'll let people down, uh, that there's something about that that is trying to, that, that just triggers all of these defense mechanisms of I'm not ready for it. And by reframing it as that self-protection, it takes away one level of beating yourself up because the idea is not to look at us like, ah, I did it again. I always do this. I'll never get through it. I'm always, because I, I like to say I work with people who think that they are their own worst enemy. Mm. This is unfortunately a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> and what, by reframing it as that self-protection, it shifts it to compassion and realizing that there is part of you that's scared. And if you can give love and support to that part of yourself and say, hey, thank you for trying to protect me. What is it that you think you are protecting me from? And start kind of a dialogue with yourself that I mentioned that journaling is a really big part of my process. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I feel like I'm being run by a committee because (laughs) there are so many different desires and fears and thoughts and stories that I need to go inside and say, okay, what is going on under the hood? What are we doing that we seem to be in conflict with ourselves? What is our goal? Can we look at our fears and our stories and assess, is that really the end of the world? Is there something else that might be possible? Is there another way we can approach this? Can we do it incrementally? All of these questions come up that build kind of a scaffolding of support so that taking that step is no longer so scary. 
And it becomes, instead of fighting yourself to push past it, it becomes a matter of stepping into curiosity. It's like, okay, what happens if we do this? And then look at it. Okay, we really liked this part. We're not so sure about this over here. Do we need to adjust our approach? Let's take another step. What happens now? And then six months down the line, you look back and go, wow, one step at a time, I've actually come really far. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's nice. So self-sabotage ties in with imposter syndrome. And this is a big one. This is one that is confusing for a lot of people. And also, a lot of people struggle with it. I, in the past, have really struggled with it as a business owner and Thankfully, I'm recovering. (laughs) Um, But I would love to hear how you help people overcome imposter syndrome. What I have found is that imposter syndrome is generally an indication that you have fallen out of flow. This comes down to mindfulness and being present in what it is that you are doing right now. If you're thinking about measuring, this is where I think I should be. This is where other people say I should be. If I don't feel like I'm actually there, then something is wrong with me. But the problem is when you look at where I am right now versus where I should be, it's static. It is a snapshot. I'm trying to, I think it was a Heisenberg principle where you can like measure velocity or location, but you can't measure both at the same time. And the problem is that you stopped and looked and go, oh no, I'm not there. Therefore, I'm an imposter. I'm not really what I say I am. The problem is you stopped. If you get back into the flow and say, okay, this is the direction I'm heading in, this is what I need to do, and you are consistent about participating in the process, uh, even if it's just a little at a time. Mm -hmm. One of my mentors is an author who says, if you want to write a book, you need to commit to writing one sentence every day. And if you do that, eventually a book will come out. Mm -hmm. Even if it's just one sentence a day, it is that motion, it is that consistency, it is that being in the process. And when you are in the process, you can look at your goal and say, okay, I may not be there yet, but... I am confident that I am in motion. I can get there. Because one of the truths is, by the time you get there, your vision's going to be on the next mountain. (laughs) So you're never actually going to get there because as you move, the target moves as well. Mm. So the target is your guidance and your direction. And it is cause for celebration when you reach those milestones, because that's the flip side of it, because we're constantly looking at, okay, I did that, but here's that next thing. We also need to pause and celebrate, hey, I did the thing. Yes, and be grateful. Gratitude. Exactly. Definitely helps. Like I was saying, six months later, look back and say, wow, the me six months ago couldn't have even imagined that I would be at this level. Mm-hmm. And yet here I am and I'm still moving. So gratitude is a huge one probably then for getting rid of those, those imposter syndrome demons. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of it, it's, just, it's the should factor because one of the, one, people talk about should being not a good thing, but they don't always say why. And one of the reasons why the word should is not useful Mm -hmm. is because it's an incomplete sentence. Whenever you say, I should be X, the implied end of the sentence is, but I'm not. 
So whenever you say should, what you're actually doing is reinforcing the opposite of what you want. Yes. And yes, it turns into a negative comment towards yourself. Exactly. Okay. You're amazing with words. And (laughs) they're fun to play with. (laughs) They are. And you have played with them in two different books. I want to talk about your books because I admire people who actually get those sentences on the paper and it turns into a book. Um, So the first one, I want well, two of them, you have two books, Navigating Life, Eight Different Strategies to Guide Your Way and Rituals of Release, How to Make Room for Your New Life. I first want to talk about navigating life first. And you say the eight strategies. Why do you call them strategies? And can you elaborate on what they are? Yeah, the... The reason I call them strategies is it's not, I didn't want to use the word steps Mm -hmm. because steps sound like you do this, 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 and then profit. Uh Uh, (laughs) the, The reason I called them strategies is because these were different areas that I found when I was, well, even when I was trying to write the book, when I'm trying to do big things, when I'm trying to achieve significant goals, Mm -hmm. I would run into challenges and friction and problems in these areas, and these would, um, these were the areas that if I set up strategies for each of them, it helped ease my way. So what are some of the eight strategies? Well, all of them, if you want to share. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's great because the first one is actually tied into some things that we were talking about. And it was from this book that a lot of my work has come from. And it's release shoulds and other people's goals. Mm. And it goes back to when we're kids, we figure out who we want to be based on how other people treat us because we need other people to survive. Yeah. So we learn how to play nicely with others. And that's very useful up until the point that we think that who we are is defined by other people's opinions. Mm -hmm. So the first thing we need to do is look inside ourselves and say, okay, what are we doing because we think we should be doing it as opposed to it's actually our calling, something for us to do. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's that's why it's the first step. First, uh-huh. we have to like get rid of the stuff that isn't us. Yes. The second step is put together a big vision. And this this is one of those things that... It's different for different people. Some people have a specific goal. This is what they want to achieve. And for some people, it's this is who I want to be. Mm -hmm. This is how I want to live my life. But the idea is have some sense of direction and guide that you can imagine to pull you forward towards what it is you're attempting to accomplish. And then, then once you have like the big idea of, mm-hmm. of what you want, then you need to figure out how you're going to get there. I am a big fan of David Allen's getting things done. And he differentiates between projects and tasks. Oh, you can look. Yeah. The, the, a project is here's the goal. Here's what you want to accomplish. Mm-hmm. But it's not necessarily something you can do. As an, he uses as an example, go on vacation. Okay, that's a project. But yeah. you don't just go on vacation. You need to buy tickets. You need to check out accommodations. You need to figure out what to pack. You need to have somebody water your plants. I mean, uh-huh. there are all of these individual tasks that culminate in going on a vacation. Yeah, okay. So that's the, in order to get there, you need to figure out what are the specific steps you need to take. The tasks. Exactly. All right. Okay. (laughs) Fourth strategy is addressing your fears. Because the, the reason I have it in this order is that for myself anyway, when 
things started coming up and going, whoa, what is this, is when I finally started taking action. Mm-hmm. I can dream all day. I can come up with all sorts of big visions and wonderful ideas, and I can do this, and I can do that. Oh, but yeah. it is when I actually started moving, it's like, wait a minute, this is real? Hold on a second. <laughs> Exciting and scary, yes. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. But if you realize that this is probably going to happen, then you can set up your strategies and your methods for dealing with it so you can work through it mm-hmm. and come out stronger than you went in. Mm, love it. And then number five. Number five is monitoring your progress. And this actually, this has two purposes. We've kind of touched on it a little. One of it uh, is just a reality check. Are you really doing what it is that you're doing? Mm-hmm. And this uh, the example I give in the book was uh, uh, kind of humbling because I was trying to work out like almost every day. And, but I wasn't feeling any better. I wasn't really seeing any results. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, hold on. So I set up a tracking sheet where I would mark off each day that I worked out. And after about a month, I looked at it and I said, oh, I thought I was working out five or six days a week, but it turns out it was more like two to three. That (laughs) might explain why I wasn't getting the results I wanted. Oh my gosh, that recently has happened to me. That's why I'm, oh, that's so funny. I was like, I'm working out like every day. I was like, oh, no, that's like three, maybe four (laughs) days a week. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's, It's good if you want to have actual results it is very useful to keep track of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And if you are doing what you thought you were doing and it's still not working, that is information you can use to change what you're doing so you get better results. Mm -hmm. Now, the other purpose for monitoring, monitoring your progress is what we were talking about is saying, hey, I actually am making progress because especially if it's a really big project, if it's something long-term, it can feel like you are slogging through it forever. Mm -hmm. And it's important to look back and say, you know, I actually have come much farther than I realized because sometimes when you're in the midst of it, you don't realize that you have made progress. Yeah. So it's important to recognize that as well. Yes, definitely. Um, And number six. Number six is correct your course. And again, there are two ways this comes in. One of them is if you're only working out twice a week, uh, (laughs) it's like, okay, let's just get back on track here. Uh It helps you get back on track. And the other one that I mentioned is if you are on track, you maybe what you're doing isn't working and it may be now that you're this far along in the process that your vision isn't doing it for you anymore. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have these, I lay out these strategies in this order very specifically, but Mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily mean that you go from one to the other to the other to the other. That's why they're not steps. Exactly. (laughs) That correcting your course aspect may be you do all this work, you get to a certain part, and then you realize, you know, this isn't speaking to me. I'm doing this for my dad. And that goes back to the first one of the releasing shoulds and other people's goals. Mm -hmm. And you may not even recognize that that's what the impetus is until you're already in it which is why it is important to have a strategy to assess where you are, where you're going, where you want to go, mm-hmm. and see, is it still applicable to who you want to be and what you want to contribute to the world? Oh, I like that. Because we do, we get stuck on, even if it's not somebody else's goal or shoulds for us, even if it's something we've put on ourselves, You do get stuck, like, I have to complete this. I have to, and I should. (laughs) I should complete Yeah, oh, yeah. I remember the first time when I realized that if I were reading a book 
and not enjoying it, I didn't have to finish the book. Oh, oh my goodness, that was freeing. It was like, really? So I don't funny. have to put myself in. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and that's such a simple example. We can do that with all parts of our life. Oh, yeah. yeah. Somebody actually had to tell me, you don't have to finish the book. Oh, okay. what a concept. <laughs> It's so freeing. Yes. It is. I think we've gotten down to seven, which is build momentum. And this is tied into the monitoring with the slight slight twist that the idea isn't just monitoring, but it's like, how do you build upon what you've already done? Mm -hmm. How do you uh, keep going, especially when you really don't feel like it? Mm, And how do you put strategies in place, systems in place that give you incentive to keep going when you really don't feel like doing it? And that will derail many of us. Just oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me put it this way. I, I wrote the book because every single one of these is things that I've been challenged with. Mm-hmm. So, I fig- so I knew I had a proof of concept of at least one. <laughs> and if these things help me, the odds are there's somebody else out there they might help as well. Exactly. Yes. And that's, I mean, that's why I'm, I have this platform people share their stories for exactly that reason that I do feel like if, if it helped you and you're one person, there's got to be at least one other person out there. Oh yeah. Right. That's awesome. So number eight, number eight is celebration. Oh, I was hoping that was in there. (laughs) Yes. And it's exactly what we talked about. We can get so stuck in the day to the day and the doing and the, I haven't gotten to this yet that we forget to step back and go, Hey, look at what I have done. This is really cool. And that gratitude and appreciation and sinking into it. And it provides more of that motivation to do more because you reward yourself with endorphins and go, yay. (laughs) Yes. And so all these strategies can be applied to all areas of someone's life, I'm assuming. Oh, definitely. Yeah, no matter yeah. what you're going through, trying decisions you're trying to make or change your life completely. I am definitely now very interested in the book myself. And I want to know more about your other book, Rituals of Release. That just se- sounds extra yeah. juicy and deep. Tell me a little bit about that. The idea behind Rituals of Release mm-hmm. is that when we have a tragic loss, Uh, like a divorce or somebody dies or something like Mm -hmm. that, it's really obvious that we have something that we need to grieve and let go of and pass through. But what we don't recognize are all the little things that accumulate on a day-to-day basis that just kind of stick to us and, Mm -hmm. and weigh us down. And so there are two parts of it. One of them is the ritual itself. And the part, the reason why I like the idea of rituals, actually, there, there are two parts to the, the ritual. One is it helps us connect with something bigger than our day-to-day lives. For mm-hmm. myself, I like finding meaning, having sense of a sacred on a regular basis that just infuses me with a little more energy and feeling like it actually means something. And the other benefit to a ritual is it gives a container for focus so that you can let go of, I got to do the laundry and the kids have to do this and, and here's this project I'm working on. It's like, no, right now is for now. So there are four stages of a ritual or four, four sections of a ritual mm-hmm. uh, within the context of this book. The first one is having a sacred space. Now, for a lot of people, they like having the altar and the physical location that they associate with rituals. Yeah. And it helps them kind of get into the mood and into the the head state of like, yeah, head and heart state that this is what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. But it's not necessary. A sacred space could also just be a moment in time. I am setting aside 
these next 10 minutes specifically for this ritual? I think when you talk about having rituals, it does scare people off to think they have to set up some big space with all the things. (laughs) No, it's like, well, the the second part of the, the ritual is just setting an intention. What is it you want to accomplish? What do you, how do you want to have changed as a result of the ritual? Mm. And it may be something as simple as clarity. It may, I want to have more understanding. I want to release something. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, this talks about different types of release and letting go. But how do you want to feel at the end of it? The third part of the ritual is an action. And it's the action that changes a thought from just an idea into a ritual, something mm-hmm. to help you embody it, whether it's journaling or dancing or going for a walk and touching a tree. Uh, it's different for each person what action represents what it is that they are trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. But by including your body in the process, it actually changes something on a, a slight physiological level. Mm, yeah. And the fourth part is actively closing out the, uh, the ritual itself. Mm-hmm. I like closing out my rituals with gratitude. The appreciation, the thank you for this time, the settling in, mm-hmm. and then closing the space allows you to step from this container that was safe and separate. And it's like an airlock into the rest of the world where things are happening and this and that and the <laughs> yeah. other, whatever. And by having that tra- that deliberate transition, you're teaching your heart that it can trust you. Because sometimes within these rituals, it can be hard talking with that part of you that's scared. Mm -hmm. And you want to be able to say, hey, it's okay. This is a safe place for you. And then you wrap it up in cotton and snuggle it in and close the door. And then you go back out to the outside world. (laughs) You were saying that rituals are scary to people. Mm -hmm, They can be. I consider my scheduling to be a ritual. Mm-hmm. I have my uh, my big date book that I am absolutely in love with. Mm-hmm. I have my my colored highlighters. I have my, um, my 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 pencils and my calendar, and I I know what I'm doing, and I create a sacred space of time. And the, for me, the sacred space is that book and the time. Mm-hmm. I set the intention. I am going to map out the next week and see what it is that I need to do. Then I sit down with it and I go into my heart and measure, okay, here is what my head says I need to do. How can I allocate it in a way that my heart feels free? Because if I only use my head in my planning, then I have 37,000 things that all have to be done yesterday, (laughs) and I never have time to see my kids. And that's not how I want to live my life. Mm -hmm. So I have, because I use it as a ritual, it gives me that extra bit of time to sink into my heart and say, okay, what activities best support my life as a whole, both my projects and my actual living? Do I have enough space scheduled in so that I feel content? Mm, yeah. And the action is the actually writing things out, the highlighting the different things, And then closing it up, I literally close the book, and that closes out the ritual so I can hang out with my husband without thinking about what I need to do the next day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautiful. So have you used these tools for yourself a lot over this last 16 months? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I have a mom. You mentioned, (laughs) and don't you have teenagers? Yes, I do. I have between the the, uh, biological, the adopted, and the friends, I have up to... Uh, up to four teenagers in the house at any given time. 
my teenager is now an adult, but I remember those days people would go, how, do, you know, how do you handle that? I'm like, it's actually really fun. It's just a lot it sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And especially this past year with the, uh, the remote schooling, it's like, I am really looking forward to having the house to myself, maybe uh-huh. a couple hours somewhere along the way. <laughs> I'm driving down the mountain and it takes, okay, so it's an hour and a half to grandma's house, but it's an hour and a half in the car by myself when I get to choose the radio station. I'm good. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Yes. I actually have a nine-year-old also. And yeah, there's been many times that the drives just take a little longer. Yeah. (laughs) Get in the car for a little bit longer. Uh (laughs) So you've probably used a lot of these tools for yourself and probably helped your family over this last 16, I don't know, 15 months, however long it's been. I've Um, I've 38 years. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And that was just March. (laughs) So true. So true. So is there anything else that you wanted to add for other people that are doing this challenging 38 years also? Honestly, I think the most important thing is I want everybody to know, each individual to know that they matter. We have all these messages bombarding us from all directions, who we're supposed to be, how we're supposed to act. But the truth is that there only is one you. And you have value just being you. You don't have to be what everybody else says. And in fact, if you try to be what everybody else is, then you're not you. Yeah. And there, there is value in you. Mm, and yes. it is worth finding out and being you. Yeah. And this is kind of the perfect timing to look into your books because we're all, yeah. we're still in it, but you know, we have that sense of coming out of it soon. And so yeah. this is like perfect timing. The quote that you said was your favorite was awesome. So I'm going to read it. Okay. Um, a ship in the harbor may be safe, but that's not what ships are built for. I feel like I've said that in so many different ways. So I want to know, what your take on that quote is. I think a lot of it goes back to the transition that we started this conversation with. So much of my, the first few decades of my life were focused on trying to be safe, trying to get people to like me, trying to be who it was that they wanted. But I wasn't happy. I wasn't living my life. And the truth is that I may not be as safe as I was as I'm putting myself out there, Mm -hmm. but I'm actually living and I'm having adventures and enjoying what I do. And I think it makes all the difference. It's, what is it? It's not the, the number of minutes in your life, but the amount of life in your minutes. Yes. It makes such a huge difference just to live your individual purpose and your yeah. plan and how you want to do it. It's beautiful. You glow because of it. Before we say goodbye, is there anything else you'd like to add? The whole you matter thing was the big thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was the big thing. Yeah, each, yeah, it is. And I think that it, it is be present. Life is not just about being happy because there is sorrow. There is definitely, there is sorrow and chaos and tragedy, and it is also part of life. But there is so much beauty and magic that constantly surrounds us if we have eyes to see. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Rachel. Thank you. This this has been lovely. Good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Our stories may be different, but we all have one thing in common. We're all trying to figure out how to navigate life on this planet, and none of us have it completely figured out. No matter what you're going through in your life, just know that you are never really alone. Come back every Wednesday for more inspiration and connection, and follow me on Instagram at thedragonflymama.com so we can stay in touch between episodes. Take care. Thank you.